Welcome to the weekly Retail Politics Podcast, where we bring you, one download at a time, the best political information about the issues of your nation. I'm your host, Jerry Shields, former longtime congressional correspondent and author. And this week on a special Dr. Martin Luther King holiday edition, we will discuss his writings with scholar September Penn, who wrote a play about Dr. King's works based on uh, his works edited at Stanford University. She is a leading expert on the music of the civil rights movement and served as music director for Dr. Claiborne Carson, a Stanford university history professor who was commissioned by Coretta Scott King to edit Dr. Luther Martin Luther King's uh, papers. Hello, September. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. It's a blessing. It's a joy to be with you all today. Tell us a little bit about your work with Dr. Carson. I've been working with Dr. Carson since 2006. Um, that's actually when my husband had gotten a fellowship there at Stanford, the John S. Knight Fellowship. So both of us were there on campus with our families, uh, with our children. And Dr. Carson, uh, basically, in, in their first meeting together, he asked him, are you here alone? Are you here with the family? And, and um, I even told him, I'm here with my wife. And um, Dr. Carson asked him, well, does, does, does she act? Uh, is she an actress? And Ivan said, yeah, she, she, um, she, she's done a little bit of theater. And he, ha- he had written the play. So the original, the first play is, uh, um, is Passages of Martin Luther King. And that was based on Dr. Carson's work while editing his paper. So this play was born out of out of that particular um, that particular project, which ended, ended up being, it consumed his life. It completely took over everything about his life. He said he had not originally wanted to be just that type of historian, but um, you know, when you get that type of assignment, you cannot turn, you can't walk away from it. Um, so yeah, it, it was in 2006. I showed up at a rehearsal for for his play. We connected. We clicked. He liked my voice. He liked the way my voice sounded on the music. Um, he had been um, sharing. Uh, the history of the music and sharing some of the songs with some of the young people there on campus. And I guess because of um, their experiences or maybe the lack thereof, when they would sing the freedom songs, they didn't sound as if they knew what pain was. They didn't sound as if they'd experienced any suffering. So even when you sing a freedom song, no matter how good it is, if you don't, if you don't come with a little bit of of something, some oomph, it falls flat. So when he shared this music with me and I sang it back, he said, oh, you sound like you've known some things in life and you've experienced a few things. So we, we completely connected. And since then, I have worked with him. Um, I've traveled with him um, here stateside uh, in the United States as well as internationally. Um, I was with him when he went to China in uh, 2007. Then I also traveled with him in 2011 going to Jerusalem, carrying um, his uh, stage play. Uh, to Jerusalem and the, as well as on um, the West Bank. We had like a nine show tour. So tell us about the play. It must be pretty fascinating. I think that I've always said that writing is really thinking on paper and for Dr. Carson to actually be almost in the room with Dr. King because he's, he's there working on those papers. Tell us about the play, what it was about. Yeah, that's a great question and a, a great observation. It was very much like... Dr. Carson was right in his room. He had access to his journals, his diaries. Wow. He had access to um, uh, various sermons, all of the sermons that um, 
the late Coretta Scott King could gather. He had access to them. So the sermon, then also the side notes and a lot of, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the, the meat and all of the good stuff is in the side notes, you know? So Dr. Carson had access to all of that. So in the play, he doesn't, he, it doesn't share just all of the big common knowledge information that people know about Dr. King. He talks about intimate, um, intimate conversations, intimate dealings within um, the family dynamic between um, Dr. King and his late father, um, the elder uh, Reverend King, and also his relationship with, with his, with his mother. Um, it, it, it includes um, intimate scenarios with his wife and how they responded, you know, to various uh, attacks, uh, how they responded when the, uh, when the church in Birmingham was blown up and those four young ladies died. Um, it, it, he, it's like a privy. It's like, it's like you pull back the curtain to see, well, what were they talking about when this happened? That's what this particular play is about. Yes, we have lots of the freedom songs and we talk about the marches and we talk about his speeches, but we share intimate conversations and intimate thoughts that he kind of mulled over um, in, in private before he went to the public. Now, who do you think was really the most inspiration for Dr. King and his movement? And was it his relationship with his father or his mother, anybody in his family? Um, a lot of things that people don't know. Um, uh, Coretta. Coretta was more active in the movement than Martin was. Coretta was already participating. She was uh, doing holding concerts. She was a, a wonderful vocalist. She would hold concerts and raise funds for the movement. She was, she was actually one of the ones who um, helped to encourage him to become more involved. Um, it, 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 the real, the, uh, as much as the, uh, you know, history, the buildup, but the real jumping point was during the bus boycott. And um, Dr. King was actually one of the new younger ministers there in town. And in a way, the local older, older ministers kind of, they saw this young man, he's young, they encouraged him and he was kind of snatched up to be the representation. It's weird how, how it all took place. And Coretta was always there. Yes, you should be giving voice to it. Yes, you should be speaking on this. Even in regards to his response to the Vietnam War, it was Coretta who was already against it and speaking out and, and, and leaning into her husband, encouraging him to go ahead and, 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 and use your platform, be the mouthpiece at this time. I remember him and reading about him being very reluctant in taking that role. I mean, that's a that's a great burden. He knew it was a great burden, and he he was very reluctant, wasn't he? He was very reluctant. It was a um, it was a decision to go from being a black Baptist pastor, which essentially you are still in private life. You are, I mean, yes, as a pastor, they have a certain amount of um, of, of maybe celebrity, but certainly at that time. He was a, a black Baptist pastor leading a congregation, being, uh, you know, he was a husband. Um, he was a family man. It was when he took that position, when they came and asked him to, to, to give that speech, that first big speech, it was a decision between the two of them. OK, we're going to actually go from our private life into public life. It was a decision. It was not something that, you know, that he made lightly. He was not being opportun opportunistic at all. He was um, very sober in making this decision. So, yeah, this was this was not a chance for someone to grab some limelight. He knew with him taking on this responsibility, it was going to change his life completely. And it certainly did. Wow. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the great books on his writings is The Testament of Hope, uh, which contains his speeches and his books. And going through the legendary 1963 I Have a Dream speech, which you talked about, he states that like 100 years ago when Emancipation Proclamation was given, um, up to 1963, Black America really had not benefited from that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talked about was the manacles of segregation and chains of discrimination. We just finished yet another year of racial tension in America with protests sparked by, you know, white officers' killings of unarmed blacks. Mm -hmm. In your mind, 57 years after this amazing speech, what is the state of Dr. King's dream today? Oh, it's, it's, it's not fulfilled. It's, it's not fulfilled. I think, um, I think, you know, like a generation ago or so, like, and when I was young, between the 70s and the 80s, there was a, this may come across a little harsh, but there was a bit of a facade, even in Black America. Um, It was as if, okay, we've made some strides. Okay, we've attained some voting rights. Okay, now there's, you know, affirmative action is in place. And we're able to, you know, to, to lift ourselves up a little more. And enough people were able to, um, I guess, elevate themselves in life that people got comfortable. It was about a good 20 years. Too many people were comfortable. And I even remember when I, the very first time I started working with Dr. King, uh, I'm sorry, with Dr. Carson, uh, some of the conversations, even with people who were on uh, on the cast, cast members. One cast member said to me, why are we still singing We Shall Overcome? We've already overcame. We've made it now. When she said that, I thought, oh, Lord. And this was, this was one of my elders. This was, not, this was not a contemporary. This was a woman who I would deem in the category of my mother or my mother's aunts, that type of category. Honestly, she was much older, but she had come through. So she had gone through the 60s and she had seen, uh, you know, she'd come through the 50s and 60s and she'd seen the effort and the pain. So what happened in this generation and this this was has only been um i guess the dawning only came like early in the 2000s was that there was a generation of adults who wanted to save their children from the pain so they stopped talking about it we're not going to talk about it no more we're not going to pass on these painful stories we're not going to talk about how much work we need we still need to do in society because look we have corporate jobs we're driving good houses we're in great neighborhoods and stuff so it was like a full 20 years of people just not talking about it because they thought quote unquote we did the hard work now let's just live as if we've overcome so no no his dream was never completely realized enough people got comfortable and there were there's huge populations of people completely disenfranchised completely not being able to tap into the dream and to participate in it fully and i mean it, 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 so so this is why you get um uh this heat bed you get people rising up because they're still, you know, living in poverty. They're still being exploited. They're still being denied a piece of, you know, the American pie. They don't know anything about what the dream looks like. Many of their family members never attained the dream. And because so many folks stopped talking about it, it became, I don't want to say a forgotten issue, but very, very much so. It became a bit of a forgotten issue. And then when, uh, okay, uh, technology, happens and we got our cell phones and, 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 and we can record stuff. 
all of a sudden, because uh, the atrocities, many of them were, were still continuing. We just didn't know about it. Uh, I remember in the late '90s when the gentleman in Texas and he was he was dragged and his head was you know his head came off while he was being dragged behind a truck. Um, people would talk about that because they hit the news, but other things were still happening. It's not until more people had their own access to record what was happening and to start sharing in their communities that all of this started rising up and bubbling up. You know what? We never did overcome. We actually never did fulfill Dr. King's dream. Um, there is still so much work to do. Yeah, I think if he was around today, he'd be as busy as ever. I mean, he'd be. Oh, yes, he would. Yeah. There was an interesting story, and you were here. You lived in St. Petersburg for a while. The Tampa Bay Times did an interesting story recently, and it was a very simple story. It just sat down uh, with a black family and went around and just said, when did you feel racism and they were simple things that they described like the the mother said well when I was a kid I couldn't play with the white kids because the white kids parents wouldn't let me and it was just astounding just those little things that that were happening have we reached the point where black citizens are judged by the content of their character rather than their color of their skin mm-hmm. mm, that's a good that's a great question, and I don't know how to answer that. But I would like to go back to your the first question that you offered that was asked to the Black family by the, the Tampa Bay Times um, when you first felt racism. Um, yeah, it's, an, it's interesting how sometimes you have to walk away from a situation and then go back and realize, oh, that was racism. <laughs> but I mean, as a child, I grew up in rural Virginia. So I grew up in the South yes. and um, I, the, the feeling that I remember as a child, as a young black girl was always stay in your place and don't draw too much attention to yourself. Don't think that you, you can do more. That was, you know, sometimes it was said, but most of the time it was felt, it was an energy of just stay in your place. Just be, just behave and be a good girl. Whereas I remember my peers, my white female peers, they were just so, they were uh, vital. Their vitality was on display, you know, and and I, and I grew up, I was the first generation that was in integrated schools. So I grew up in my classroom. It was basically 50, 50. It was the black white dynamic. We didn't have other cultures. There weren't there weren't any Latino. There weren't any Asian Americans. It was the black white dynamic right there in Virginia. But I just remember always the feeling of no, you can't do what those white girls do. You can't uh, you can't be comfortable thinking you're going to get on the cheerleading squad. You can't be comfortable um, uh, auditioning to get this part in the play because. Obviously, that's going to go to the white girl. That was always the feeling, the energy, the vibe in the air. And it wasn't until I went away to college. I went to Virginia Tech. I'm a hokey, tried and true. And um, I, and I get married. I move away. I'm in Maryland. I live in Florida. Now I live in California. And I'm, you know, there's different things that you sense. There's different cultures and different different energies that all these different various locales have. It wasn't until and this is very recent, Jerry, when I went back to Virginia. Uh, for a family trip. And I remember driving just down uh, Highway 29. It's one of the main roads in Virginia. 
And it's like, I felt I could feel the tension in the air. And then I started seeing the Confederate flags. I grew up always seeing Confederate flags. I grew up not knowing that the Confederate flag was actually an art to me. It was, you know, it was not something that I need to be waving and celebrating, but I remember seeing it all the time as a child. It was never completely explained to me. What does this mean? What is its dynamic in your life? But it's not until I'm, you know, I'm a grown, grown woman. My children are grown and I'm going back home and I see the Confederate flags again and it strikes me differently. And then I, I'm, it hits me. Oh, that uncomfortable feeling that I always had as a little black girl that's called racism. And it's a it's a constant anxiety, it seems. It seems it's almost like an electric buzz going through you all the time, no matter where you are. And I, I see it here um, in, in, in Florida. I see it a lot yeah. and, and it's yeah. still happening. Uh, tell us a little bit about the sounds of the civil rights movement, the power of song. Tell us how you developed that. Oh, thank you for asking about that. Yeah. Now, my production was born out of my experiences working with Dr. Carson and his production. So it's like his production gave birth to mine. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't just write it on purpose. I was asked to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, after I'd been working with Dr. Carson from 2006 to 2014, um, I, would, I was also doing um, other projects there in the city, in St. Petersburg. I'd also worked on a project called The Cardboard Stories, that told about um, the stories of the homeless. I did all the music for that. And I I participated in Black Nativity. I'm just giving you a little bit of context Mm -hmm. as to why I was approached. But I was approached by um, a state representative there in Florida. Uh, He basically, you know, came to me and Ivan and said, we need a kickoff event for the Martin Luther Day of service projects. Um, We've been getting this funding from the state to put on these service projects. He said, but you know what? Even though the projects are good, no one is showing up and people are not volunteering and we try to tell them about it, but it's like, it's like no one, no one's tuning in. We need a kickoff event to get people, to get the community excited and tuned in and Hey, look, we have these projects you can participate in. So I was approached to, uh, to, to essentially write an original um, play about the music of the movement. They knew very well about um uh, passages of Martin Luther King, but they said they we, we said we want to focus on the music. I mean, St. Petersburg is huge on music. It's making like um, it's putting out some amazing artists who are showing up all over the United States, uh, New York, Broadway, California. But so so they were really wanting to focus on the music. Mm-hmm. So that was like right up my alley. I've been working on that music and I've been, you know, studying some of the, you know, historical content behind this music, uh, this music. So it was like a beautiful opportunity to take all of those years of just working on it, putting it on paper and creating a whole brand new production and just giving that history. So it's really very much so it, they're history lessons about the music and about the artists and about the events that prompted the music. So um, just for one particular example, one of the songs that we highlight is How I Got Over. How I Got Over was made very, very popular by Mahalia Jackson. But How I Got Over was written by the, um, why am I losing her name right now? All of a sudden her name. Oh, goodness, the first group that that wrote it. Oh, this is terrible. Um, It was written by another group. Uh, it was a group of women um, who, as they were driving through the segregated South in their Cadillac, um, they had been surrounded by 
um, angry white men, a mob mob of angry white men, and they were attacking them. Uh, one of the sisters, mm-hmm. she ended up just hurling off, and it, I don't know if she was speaking in tongues. I'm not sure what she was doing, but she hurled off uh, all types of incantations to these men, and they just took off. They ran from that particular, yeah, from that particular episode. <laughs> They they wrote this song, How I Got Over. They were like, my soul looks back and it wonders uh-huh. how I got over. So that they 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 wrote they wrote that song. So that, that that's the kind of stories that, that we're telling. And I hate the fact that I lost the artist right there. And as soon as I get off, that's gonna come right back. Excuse me for interrupting, but was it Clara Ward? Yes, yes, there you go. Yeah, the Clara Ward. Clara Ward, yes. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, Clara Getting Ward. Close, yes, she wrote How I Got Over from that particular incident. So those are all the stories that we tell. We tell, you know, how was the song born? Um, how has it been used? Um, how has it helped to move the movement forward? Um, so we, 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 give, we give homage to all of those early freedom singers and the work that they did in the civil rights movement. There's a quote um, uh, that uh, Martin Luther King shares that he knew that the people in a city or a people in an area were serious about peaceful protests when he heard them singing. If he went to a city and the people were not actually, you know, uh, they, they they didn't know the songs, they weren't sharing the songs. Mm-hmm. He it was like I don't know if they're quite ready to really be peaceful, but he knew that okay, we can do this, we can move forward, we can have a nonviolent uh, a protest, we can we can have a nonviolent presentation because they are singing. There's something about the the singing, not just yes, singing calms the uh, the savage beast, but singing also it, it 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 joins people, it brings them together on one accord, it it offers hope, it stirs people on, it it is a galvanizing factor that totally helped help to strengthen the civil rights movement in the day. Yeah, I like that you mentioned Mahalia Jackson because I love this story. So Martin Luther King's given the I Have a Dream speech, yes. which wasn't the I Have a Dream <laughs> speech. And he's talking and giving his speech. And he was supposed to have eight minutes. And Mahalia Jackson standing behind him and saying, Martin, talk about the yes. dream. Martin, talk about Tell the dream. About and the he dream. just rips into that whole thing kind of a riff that i'm sure he performed before but he ended up with 16 minutes and that and that's what happened i love that story so when we talk about power power is defined as the ability to get things done Mm -hmm. tell me how you get things done with a song it seems like as you say it's powerful how do you get things done with the song It, it 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 is um it's the various elements of the song that do it um one of course, the lyrics and one of the beautiful aspects of these songs that we share, many of the songs, those lyrics were crafted on the spot. Those lyrics were not, you know, people didn't gather in a studio or a writing session and say, hey, we need a song for the movement. These people were out there. So they took they took songs that they were already singing in the church and they would flip those lyrics so that they would be applicable to what they were doing right then and they, right then at that point, many of the lyrics of um, "We Shall Overcome" were written like in in corners of jail cells. Mm. They were written um, 
as people were, were gathering themselves and, and, you know, because you don't know what you're going to face. They, they knew about the water hoses. They knew about the dogs, but they were still trying to be strong to get, to get out there. They were written right on the spot. Say, I am not afraid. I am not afraid. I am not afraid. And of course it's, we are not afraid because it's always communal. We are not afraid. So those many of those lines for all of the songs, um, uh, uh, we shall overcome, um, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. So many of those freedom songs, those lyrics were written on, in the battlefield, on the march, in the midst of what they were dealing with. So that, that is one of the powerful, powerful effects is the lyrics. Another powerful effect is the tonality. It is, um, some of, not, not, I, Maybe in a way the key, but the, the tonality that comes out when you hear group singing, there is something, a frequency, a vibration that's taking place in the entire room because they're all singing the same note. Maybe some folks are harmonizing, but they're all, they're getting in that triad. They're all singing uh, in complement with each other. And there is a vibrational effect, a frequency that takes place. In our physical being, there is something that takes place as we are singing together, communal singing. Yeah, that's a power of communal singing. And, and in terms of, I know you're trying, you want to use this production to promote racial healing and taking it to other cities and doing that thing. How, how would this help in promoting racial healing, do you think? Well, it, it's already helped. Um, in the cities that we performed it, it is already um, promoted conversation. Mm-hmm. Literally, we we heard. Um, first of all, the very first year that we performed the production, um, the director of the program said um, their volunteerism went up sixty percent. Wow! People participated in those Martin Luther King Day projects because mm-hmm. they saw the significance mm-hmm. of it, and each year it went up. But what's really interesting is the testimony of the conversations that were taking place in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one particular scene where we talk about black women's hair mm-hmm. and how uh, oftentimes corporate America would have problems with various hairstyles mm-hmm. of black women. Um, I, I mean, that, that is a form of racism. Sure. Uh, one, one woman told me literally as we were doing that scene, a white man turned around and said, what is this all about? What is she talking about? This woman completely, yes, she, she explained to her and he was like, oh, wow. I never thought about that. This is so winter interesting. I mean, I, I got notes from older white men who would say, wow, it's like, it's like you gave us a peek as to these private conversations that we had no idea. So it, it, it's already promoting conversation, promoting, you know, uh, communal dialogue and and people just coming together of different backgrounds, learning of each other and trying to see the places where they can meet and in the places where wrong has taken place, at least it's bringing it to their attention. Mm-hmm. So what, what I know as we move this forward, we already, we have requests. Um, actually, Biola University has requested that we do the production with their with their school system. It, it it will either be this year. It all depends on you know COVID vaccine. It was supposed to be last year, and then COVID took place. Um, but they they have seen clips of it. We've had discussions. They said we need that conversation on our campus. Uh, we need our, our 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 Caucasians, our Asian Americans. We need the, them having hearing the music. Because the music does something to your body, you know, the frequencies, and then it opens you up to participate in that type of conversation. 
Now, what can listeners do to help you? I know this is a nonprofit group and organization that you're promoting. What can listeners do to help promote this? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Um, they can visit our website, www.thepowerofsong.org. Um, there is, uh, you can get all kinds of information on, on, on our productions. There's some scenes there. Um, there's lots of clips. Um, there are uh, uh, different various newspaper articles that have been written about it and the work that we do. Um, and then there, there's a donate button. There is a donate button. <laughs> We're always looking to, you know, for folks to partner with us to help us tell the message. So, um, like I said, Biola University is planning to, to have us. Um, we've had interest from uh, a university in, in Ohio. And then there's been interest because I've been to Japan twice um, with my mentor, um, uh, Mako Fujimura, and, and I've done portions of the production in Japan. There's interest for us to bring the entire production to Japan um, to address some of those cultural issues um, that the Japanese have been facing. So I was curious because you mentioned Beijing and you mentioned Jerusalem and now you mentioned in Japan. How is it received over there? It's interesting because in Beijing, and this is so, I, I didn't know this myself, but in Beijing, in, in many countries um, that I'm learning, um, also it's in, it's in Africa, but many Asian countries, there is still, obviously you have the caste system, but there is a uh, skin, skin color is major, major. Mm-hmm. I was completely shocked in Beijing driving around all of the blatant uh, marketing, the advertisement on bleaching creams. Bleaching creams are so huge uh, in, in the Chinese culture. Hmm. And, you know, those who have more money who are in, are, are in the higher caste, they, uh, money is more fluid, they're buying more bleaching creams or they're doing those skin treatments. Um, and then you, so you see, and I hadn't seen, I just was, you know, was not a part of my experience, much darker, you know, Chinese Chinese residents, Chinese Chinese, uh, Chinese people. Um, so it, it, it is a true dynamic. And even when we got there um, with the cast, all of the singers were, you know, African-American gospel singers and the cast were all Chinese. Um, so you had Coretta, um, Dr. King, um, JFK, um, um, Malcolm X, all of these individuals that we talk about in the production, they're represented by Chinese actors. Wow. And this was the the best. Yeah, wow. this was the best. The premier theater company there in China wow. that 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 put it on. Mm-hmm. But all of them are were of the lighter, the fairer skin. And when we got there, it was very interesting. We were told this this is not your dressing room. Oh. <laughs> And I laugh about it now. And I actually kind of snickered about it then. I was like, oh, okay. So we, we were told we had the other dressing room, which obviously was not as nice as their dressing room. We're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not in Kansas anymore. So um, I could talk to you for hours. Um, tell us a little bit. We're kind of getting back to Dr. King and his writings. Tell us from your mind what we need to do to reach that dream. And I, I know we've got a long way to go, but tell us what you think in your mind we would help. Oh, empathy. The first word that comes to my mind is, is empathy. If be, obviously this is on, on the individual level and that's where it all starts anyway. Um, yes, there needs to be a change to various policies. Certainly there needs to be a change on the, you know, the institutional the national level, but so much of that is going to start on the individual empathy level. If 
as individuals, we can have empathy with one another, feel one another, see one another, see the humanity in, in one another. And, and myself, you know, I, I am a Christian. So I'm saying, see, see, see the Imago Dei, see the image of God in each other. Uh, if we can do that, then we could finally talk and finally hear each other. Um, there's just so much, um, everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's, you know, uh, angry about something, but there's so much that people can't take down enough to actually feel and hear the other. I think on the individual level, that's going to, if it's done on an individual level, that will affect the institution itself. Fascinating. I want to thank you for joining us today, taking your time. It was wonderful to have you on the podcast, and I wish you the best with the power of song movement. Thank you so much, Jerry. This has been a blessing being with you. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please pick up my book, The Front Row, My Jagged Journey, Recording American History from Reagan to Trump with Sexons Addressing the very matters we discussed today available on amazon.com we will be back next week with another edition of the weekly retail politics podcast please visit us on apple Podcasts, and you can help greatly by writing a review of the show i want to thank our executive producer mike gugat and our technical producer, the Wizard of Pods, and the man who came through with the history today, Brad Maybe. <laughs> and until we meet again next week, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. <laughs> <laughs>